Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. If you will, Philippians chapter 4. I want to look at this passage, the end of Paul's letter. It's a real blessing to come to this point in, in this letter. And, and uh, it would be a blessing to preach through the whole thing at, at times. But today we're going to do a, a quick survey of the book and, and, then, and then talk about these, these closing Remarks. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 10, uh, through, through the end of the chapter, he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs, not that I Seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. But I've received everything in full and have abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a flagrant aroma, fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I get at this time of year especially to do a, do a measure of uh, premarital counseling, and it's always a blessing to do that, meeting with three different couples right now, and, and there are various stages, they're approaching their, their weddings at various stages in the calendar, but uh, one of them was getting married just after graduation, and, and we talked today about the issue of finances, and so if you've ever thought about finances, you know that Finances can create a lot of problems within a marriage, right? So they say statistically the leading presenting cause of divorce in our country may not be the root cause, but it's the presenting cause. And so we talk about finances a good bit. I have them prepare a budget based on the income they think they'll have. Um, I like Dave Ramsey's approach. He says have a zero-based, zero-dollar budget. That is, you know what's coming in. You you decide where it's all going to go, and and you know where every dollar dollar is spent or where every dollar is saved. And, and so we have that approach. I, I encourage our, the couples to do that, to say, I know what God has given us. I know I want to be a good steward of this. I know how we're going to spend it, what we're going to save, how we're going to invest, what we're going to give. Those are all in, important measures. But what, what the chapter of the book we read uh, doesn't mention and what Dave Ramsey doesn't always talk about and others is, is that there is another commodity in our budgets that's extremely valuable. As a matter of fact, it might be the most valuable thing that we have as part of our budget, and that is the commodity of contentment. A couple that's content with what God has provided for them, uh, they will not have any problem with their budget because their budget might crash and burn, right? Their income may come and go. It may rise and fall. But if they have God as the source of their contentment, they will be fine. So in the midst of talking about finances, sorry, spoiler alert for those here that I'm spending time with, um, 
contentment is is the most important thing when it comes to to our our budget and so it is the most important thing when it comes to our life for Christ as well contentment is a valuable a most valuable commodity and Paul writes this this letter of Philippians uh, to the Philippians he writes from imprisonment in Rome so Paul himself is dealing with lessons that God is teaching him he's writing to express to them the the joy that he has and that they should have in the progress of the gospel, no matter what the circumstances are. He learned that his, his tough circumstances, as he, he says, and you're welcome to leaf through the book if you want, the, the letter, the short letter. In verse uh, chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Now I want you to know that my circumstances, and though they're bad, though they're not what he would have chosen, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Paul learned that Whatever God brought him through, it would turn out to accomplishing God's mission if if Paul would be engaged in that. And he says the imprisonment that I'm facing in the cause of Christ has actually become well known through a whole people group that I may have not have otherwise been able to preach to. Call it the Praetorian Guard. Um, and he says, and to everyone else as well. And most of the brethren were trusting the Lord because of his imprisonment had far more courage to speak the gospel themselves. So his circumstances turned out toward the progress of the gospel, both in the place where he was in prison and also in the lives of those who saw his example of service. Uh, Paul learned through his circumstances it didn't really matter so much what happened to him so long as Christ was, as he says in verse 18 of of chapter 1, even now as always magnified in my body. And Paul, of course, concludes with that famous verse, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul would have sung boldly the song we just sung, right? To live is Christ. I long to give my life and time to worship him. And what a blessing to give your life in that way. He learned, in, as he says in what we have as chapter 2, to have the same mind of Christ that is one of, of humility, which sees the circumstances of life as God-given and God-directed. Paul learned to, to give up his own ambition in order to do the will of the Father. That was his greatest joy. For after all, God was at work in him both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What a blessing to know that God is at work in us to want to do what he wants us to do and to do what he's called us to do, right? What a blessing. God doesn't leave us alone, thankfully. So, He encourages the Philippians, so do all things without grumbling and complaining. As a testimony of light to the world, counting the word of life more precious than the pride of life. You know, people have all their circumstances taken care of. They have all their security and the things of this world. And then sometimes they lose it and they don't know what to turn to. The Christians that say, this is given by God and taken from God and I I trust God with it, whatever my circumstance. He cautioned them. Later on as well, to beware of false teachers, those who put their confidence in the flesh. Talks about this in in chapter 3. Or those who put their confidence in changing circumstances. These are things from which unbelievers seek contentment. The flesh and their circumstances. These are things, though, that believers count as lost for the sake of Christ. And Paul says, I count all these things as rubbish, he says, refuse that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own which comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, he says in verse 8 of chapter 3. Therefore, for Paul, he says, it's 
Our goal to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that he may obtain the resurrection from the dead. A lot of people have bucket lists. Do you have a bucket list? Kind of something old guys have, I think, maybe. But people have bucket lists. Paul's bucket list was consisted of these things. To know Christ. To know Christ's power. To fellowship with Christ in suffering. And I would fill in the blank there. Suffering because he's faithfully proclaiming the, the gospel in hard places. To know the conformity to Christ's death if it was the Lord's will, in order to obtain the resurrection from the dead. What's the greatest thing we look forward to having in our bucket list? It's to obtain the resurrection of the dead. And this life is short. It's not going to last very long. And, and so having the opportunity to be raised with Christ and to be with him forever, what a blessing that is. Paul proclaims this, but he's not resting on his laurels and on his good intentions, on his spirit of of spirituality. But while he's here, he presses toward the mark, he says in, in chapter 3, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says, if we don't have this attitude, God will reveal it to us, the need for it, often in our changing circumstances. He mentions in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, and, and we are to follow people like Paul, his and others' examples. We're to be careful not to follow the examples in our culture, in our world, who, whose mind are set on earthly things, whose God is their belly. For these are, Paul says very starkly, these are enemies of the cross of Christ. They're going the wrong direction. They're not examples to follow, people to avoid. We don't mind earthly things primarily because our citizenship is where? It's in heaven, right? It's in heaven. He concludes chapter 3. And then chapter 4, he says, However, while we are here, we are to stand firm by living in harmony together with fellow believers. We're to rejoice in the Lord. We're to be gentle with one another. We're not to worry, to be anxious or overly anxious about controlling our future, but entrust these things to God through prayer, thinking on the best things and practicing what we have seen in Paul's life and in Christ's life so that those things become our own. So there's a survey getting us up to our text. So if you ask me to preach one sermon on one text, I have to give you the whole book. I'm sorry about that. Why do I introduce our text in this way? Well, there's, there's some disagreement about this section that I, that I read at the beginning uh, about what, what, how this fits in the epistle. And, and some say that the, kind of the whole epistle was a letter of thanks of some sort, concluding here, um, and that here Paul finally gets around to offering the thanks he intended at the beginning. Obviously, I don't agree with that. I think Paul intends everything he wrote by the Spirit in this epistle. Some see this as one of many separate exhortations that fill up the epistle. And uh, here there's an exhortation towards thanksgiving, and so it kind of stands on its own. Some see this section as a separate letter that was later combined with the epistle. One commentator sees it as a model of how to thank people without obligating them to give more. So this is for missionaries, right? Uh, certainly, most of these approaches have some element of goodness and truth, but all of them except one make uh, good points, I think. However, in light of the larger focus of the epistle, which I just tried to lead us through, then that is, I believe the theme of this epistle is having our joy in the progress of the gospel. That is, our joy is primarily in knowing Christ and proclaiming Christ. And whatever happens in our life, it, it doesn't matter so much as long as those things are true. I think it fits right in with the theme. If our main mission as Christians is to be about the task of, 
of glorifying God by spreading the name of Christ and, and being conformed to the image of Christ and ultimately being with Christ, then we understand very clearly Paul's point here is aligning with the entire theme of what Paul has written in this epistle. He rejoices because, come what may, God provides for him so that he can carry out the mission of spreading the gospel. And here Paul uses this opportunity, yes, to offer thanks to them for a particular gift they gave, uh, a gift that they gave as he has given to them in his ministry. But Paul here wants to remind them that the reason they can give is because God has given so much to them. The reason we can rejoice in the Lord greatly, regardless of our circumstances, is because God holds on to us and because Christ has saved us, us and because God has called us to a mission of proclaiming Christ. And, and whatever happens, it'll work out because God is in control of all of it. And so our title today is Joy of Christian Contentment. And I don't have a PowerPoint for you, but the title's there in case you forget what it is. And I just want to encourage you with this main truth. We must realize that we will only find true contentment in this life if we have our joy in the provision of Christ and in the purposes of Christ. And so I want to encourage you with that. And we have a lot of students here that are getting ready to go off into summer ministries and some graduating going off into, to quote unquote, real life, as we like to say. And I will say to you that you have to realize that you will only find contentment in this life if you find your joy in Christ himself and in doing the mission, accomplishing the mission of Christ. And everything else will fit underneath that, and you'll be just fine. It will be the most valuable commodity in the budget of, of your life. And I, I have just a couple simple points, and, and I hope to be relatively brief today, because whenever there's food cooking in the building, people start to smell it, and their contentment is affected, right? <laughs> so we've got to be careful about that. But I have two simple points. The first one is this. If our joy is in Christ, we can be content in any circumstance. Now you're like, that's a, that's, did you get that from the Greek? No, I got it right here from my English Bible. If our joy is in Christ, we can be content in any circumstance. Paul says in verses 10 through 14, I rejoiced greatly. Even though you couldn't give as much as I might have needed, you gave when you could, but you lacked opportunity. But I really don't speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am in. I know how to get along with humble means and how to live in prosperity in every, in, in every circumstance. I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all these things through him who strengthens me. I think we can have joy in Christ when we are content in any circumstance. And I see the first supporting point for that is that we are content. We can be content even when worldly provisions are irregular in God's providence. When worldly provisions seem irregular, it's pretty easy to be content when you have everything you need, isn't it? I mean, when things are going well, when the stock market's booming, you know, when we don't face any security issues, things are well. But as soon as something is pulled out from under us that we found our contentment in, we start to complain, don't we? We start to grumble and dispute, regardless of who's in office. Paul says to these, these uh, Philippians, he says, you know, you didn't, weren't able to give to me. You didn't have opportunity, but I'm still rejoicing in the Lord. Ten years prior, Paul had helped plant the church in Philippi. Remember Lydia, the seller of purple, gathered people into her home, and they, they planted a church, and, and Paul was proclaiming the gospel and got imprisoned, but then God delivered them, and even the jailer came to Christ and his whole household. What a blessing that was. Um, in Acts 17, we see the Philippians had encouraged Paul, and, 
and sent him to Thessalonica and Berea. And on past that, it seems in time, they, they must have lost touch of where he was. He didn't have a tracker on his phone, so they knew exactly where he was at all points in time, perhaps due to their own difficulties as well. They weren't able to help. They may not have known what he needed. They may not have known where he was. However, when they heard he was in prison in Rome, they were able to send help with Epaphroditus, and they gladly did so. But Paul makes it clear to them that his friendship with them was not dependent on them always meeting his needs. His trust was in God's provision primarily, and so he shares that with them. It seems that Paul could have stayed in touch with all of his churches more closely, could have written creative letters to get gifts from them, and had his security in the needs that they met. But instead, Paul trusted the Lord through this entire process. We are content even when the providences of God seem irregular, right? And Paul says, I rejoice even though I didn't get all that I needed at the time. Another supporting point is this. We are content when our contentment is not dependent on our circumstances, but on our Savior and his mission. And this is maybe the the thrust of this passage. We are content when our contentment is not dependent on our circumstances, but on our Savior and his mission. He says, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. And he talks about these contrasting circumstances and life issues that he's faced, some good and some bad. We would say, boy, I'd go for the good ones. I try to avoid the bad ones. But Paul says in all of them, I am able to do what God has called me to do through Christ who who strengthens me. And I think sometimes what we face in our lives, I know what I face in my life is, is a spirit of discontent that comes from a false sense of need, right? And I, I preached a message a couple of years ago uh, from First Timothy 6 on, on this to what we should be contentment. You know, godliness with contentment is, is great gain. And, and really in that passage, Paul says, really, if we have what? If we have food and clothing, you know, we should be content, we have a false sense of need. Where do we get our sense of need sometimes? Now we have, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs has kind of become ingrained into our culture and into our thinking, hasn't it? We have certainly a need for our, our physical needs to be met, our food and, and shelter. We have, he says, as he has an ascending pyramid, need for safety. And then we have a need for, for affection or love, the giving and receiving of, of love. And then we have a need, he says, for esteem. That is, we need the respect of others. Boy, if you got a beating from someone, you'd be hurting there, well, literally, on both fronts. And then finally, the need for self-actualization, Maslow says. And, and, and you know, we study that in, in maybe general psychology, and we think, you know, some of that makes sense. It, it makes sense that these are needs that people have and the way people arrange their priorities in life. But where do we really get our sense of need? We get it often from the world, from the world's sense of need. What do you need right now? What did you think you need? What is the last time you told your friend or your wife or your husband, we need this? What was it? You know, I need a new fishing pole. The tips of mine have all gotten broken off through stages of life and weeks. I need a faster internet connection. I need that new iPhone, right? The latest version because of, I don't know why, because of something. How many stores do you think would go out of business if we didn't have this sense of need, right? I mean, if you look around, if you walk through the mall or around a shopping center and you start thinking, man, I don't really need that. 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 Now, we want people to keep their jobs, but, but what is our sense of need, really? People are not really content with 
with getting what they even think they need sometimes. It seems those who are the wealthiest are often the most miserable. Look at Elon Musk. He wasn't satisfied until he bought Twitter, right, for 40-something billion dollars. Goodness. I mean, maybe it's a good thing, but nonetheless. Instead, people are obsessed with delineating their needs and loudly demanding that they be met. Need has become the number one value in our culture. We need everything in order to be happy. But oftentimes we find ourselves like a hamster on our wheel with a piece of food dangling in front of us, spending great energy but getting nowhere in our lives, right? There's a book called uh, The uh, Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's written by a Puritan named Jeremiah Burroughs. He says this, a Christian comes to contentment not so much by way of addition but by subtraction. And what he wants to address there in this section of his work is, is we often think if I just had something else, then I would be content. How many of you think that sometimes? Okay, if you're not raising your hand, um, let's see. We always think, if I just had something else, then I would be content. If I just made a little more, or if, or if the car was a little nicer, or if, or if my kids were a little more well-behaved, we'd be content. And so the world thinks, by way of addition, we find contentment. If we add something to our life, we find contentment. But Burroughs makes the argument that the Christian way to contentment is actually by the way of subtraction. Uh, this is his way of contentment, and it is a way that the world has no skill in. We find contentment not by adding to what we have, but by subtracting from our desires, so that our desires and circumstances are even and equal. And I think that's a good point that he makes, something to think about. Maybe the reason we struggle with contentment is because we've added too much to our, our thought of needs, and because they're not met, then we were discontent. Paul knew that his one need was to know Christ and to glorify him by sharing the gospel. It took, yes, it took food and, food and clothing to do that, to, to keep himself physically able to do what God had called him to do. But it really took little else. He could find, therefore, contentment in a variety of circumstances. And, and I would encourage us to find our contentment in Christ just like Paul does. Charles Spurgeon calls contentment, he says this, this is surely the highest degree in the humanities to which a man can attain. That is a degree in contentment. Um, it's only used here and in, in another passage in 1 Timothy, but the word was originally used as, as in secular writing as, as to describe a country that really needed no imports for its sustenance. It was a country that was self-sustaining. We talk a lot about our need to be self-sufficient, right? Energy self-sufficient and our oil and such. And that word contentment was originally used to describe a country that really had all the resources it needed to provide for its own needs and plans. But Paul turns the tables on this philosophy. It became a matter of stoic philosophy that I have what I need, I'm self-sufficient, and I can take on anything. The Stoics were, were uh, the kind of strong people that weren't affected by circumstances. But Paul turns it on its head, and he has a reaction to the Stoics, but not being tossed about by circumstances, but instead of self-sufficiency, Paul advocates for something else, and that is Christ's sufficiency, or God's sufficiency. That is, we have all that we have because we have all that we need in Christ. We have all that we have because we have all that we need underneath the sovereignty of God to accomplish the work that he's called us to accomplish. And so contentment is found when we are Christ-sufficient. Contentment also, though, is something we have to learn Paul says this, I have learned the secret 
of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. It's something Paul knew he had to learn, and he did learn. It's not our natural propensity. Our natural propensity is toward dissatisfaction. Paul says we have to learn this. It's like grass is not the natural propensity of dirt. I'm trying to plant some grass in our yard right now, and it, the weeds, where do they come from? Who's sneaking into my yard and planting weeds at night? I don't know, but the grass is not a natural propensity of dirt, of soil. You have to plant it and cultivate it very carefully. You have to learn how to grow it. Contentment is not self-sufficiency. That is, I will be fine if I get to this point of possessions or work or satisfaction. Because our circumstances change so much, they're undependable. People in Ukraine, they probably were relatively content just a relative short time ago until their country exploded with war. And some people are still giving great testimony of contentment in the midst of that. In other circumstances, Paul received offerings and protections, and he was able to work as a tent maker. But then in other circumstances, he received stonings and beatings and had to flee cities. And yet he found contentment in all of these things. Contentment is something that he had to learn. Turn over, if you want to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is, this is just a great little survey of some of Paul's teachers when, he, when it comes to his learning contentment. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 33, he says this, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. You know, Paul was in other places defended his apostleship by his training and teaching, but he, he says he counts that as rubbish as he does in Philippians. But here he says, Servants of Christ, this is how I became a servant of Christ, through laboring, imprisonment, beatings, danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, Dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure of me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast about what pertains to my weakness. That's a great little survey of what Paul has learned, where Paul has learned his spirit of contentment and all those things. I have a uh, professor, Roland McCune, he used to talk about, uh, he used to teach systematic theology, and, and he would always make reference to this, this place from which he learned called the School of Hard Knocks. He said their colors are black and blue. And he said he, would, you know, he learned as much from that as he did from all of his classes. And it's true, we learn a lot from the experiences that God takes us through. And Paul learned through these things. But Paul knew that every circumstance was a teacher in our desire to find our contentment in Christ. Thomas Brooks, another Puritan, says this, one property of a, hum a humble soul is this, it will quietly bear burdens and patiently take blows and knocks and make no noise. He goes on to say, a humble soul sees God through all the actions of man. He looks through secondary causes 
and he sees the hand of God in all of them. And I think that was part of Paul's point. In all these things, I'm not just trying to make you feel sorry for me. I'm not listing a, a, a list of grievances, a list of, of where my rights have been violated. Paul says these are all under the good providence of God. These are secondary causation to what God has designed to accomplish in me and through me and making me find Christ as my all-sufficient one and making me see the gospel being proclaimed as, as the primary task that God's taking me through. Contentment was something that Paul had to learn. And then so when, when he talks in Philippians about, I've been, uh, been in humble means and, and prosperity and, and I've learned the secret of going hungry or being filled or having abundance and, and suffering need and all these things, the bottom line is that God is in control of them all. And Christ has given me strength to endure them all. And that's what he says when I, he gets to verse 13 and says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says, regardless of the difficulties I faced, regardless of the despairing circumstances I've been in, I can endure all these things for the sake of having my sufficiency in Christ and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ because Christ gives me strength. That verse is not something you put on your sneakers so you can hit three-pointers, right? It's something you say, God, when you're taking me through the intense burdens and depressing circumstances and difficult situations of life, I can endure these for your sake, for your glory, and for the sake of the gospel because Christ strengthens me through them. He gives me the ability to endure these things. And so we depend on Christ in order to have contentment as well. We can be content when we see our circumstances are from God and we find our sufficient strength in Christ and we see a greater value in our circumstances because of what God is doing through them. This is Paul's secret. This is our secret. This is a valuable thing to have. We sang a little bit earlier in the college class a song, simple song called Jesus Strong and Kind. And the chorus of that is so refreshing. It says, for the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus, strong and kind. Are you finding your sufficiency in Christ today? Are you dependent on the Lord teaching you through your circumstances to ultimately depend on him, to be content in him, giving yourself for the mission of Christ? And I won't spend a lot of time on this next section, but I think that's that's my second point, that, that if our joy is in Christ, we will be content in any circumstance. And secondly, if our joy is in Christ, we can enjoy the blessing of, of giving and serving others in the midst of any circumstance. And, and that's why Paul goes on to encourage their giving in verse 15 and following. He says, No church is shared with me in giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent me a gift. But I don't worry so much about the gift itself, but I... Seek for the profit which increases to your account. I think Paul is telling the Philippians, these lessons that I have learned to find my sufficiency in Christ and contentment in what God has brought me through for the sake of the mission, you have clearly learned because though you face difficulty as well, you continue to give and to sacrificially serve. And if our joys in Christ, our contentment will bear fruit in giving to others and in and serving others. And, and Paul goes on to conclude in verse 19, My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And Paul's not saying, so you're going to get everything you want to make you content in this world. He's saying, you're going to have all you need 
in order to give to meet the needs of others and to serve others. That's what Paul's telling the Philippians right there. Their giving and their service is a direct result of their contentment in Christ alone and their trust in God for dealing with the circumstances under which they are living for the sake of the gospel. So if our joy is in Christ, we can enjoy the blessing of sacrificial giving as it being a fruit in serving others. God does not need us to do his work. God gives us the opportunity to do his work, and it's such a blessing. I want to close with, a, with just an exhortation. If you're here today and you're without Christ and you, you really see the world as it is, it's tossed and turned about, it's, you chase after contentment and it's never there, I want to encourage you today, you can find your contentment in Jesus Christ. He is an all-sufficient Savior. He came and lived the righteous life that none of us could live. We fail. We bear the guilt of that. We feel the strain of, of trying to please God and others on our own, and we can't do it. But Christ did it for us, and we can have his righteousness credited to our accounts. We bear guilt because of our sin, and yet we don't have to die for our sin because Christ died on the cross in our place. Christ bore the punishment for our sin on the cross himself. But it doesn't end there. Christ also rose from the dead. He conquered death. He conquered the power of, of sin, that power that we so intensely feel in our lives, that even as Christians sometimes seeps back in and seeks to enslave us again. And Christ conquered that power through the resurrection, and he lives forever at the right hand of the Father to make intercession for us, and he calls us to proclaim this gospel to those in our world while we're here. And he calls us, when we're done, to come home to be with him. He's prepared a place for us there, a place. And I was thinking the other day as I was doing something at our house or our yard, some project, I'm like, I'm so thankful that Christ has prepared a place for me. You know, I don't have to move into a fixer-upper in the next stage of life. God's taking care of it. We can be content and live a life of joy if Christ is our sufficiency. And if we see his mission is the main thing God has called us to, we trust God to help us with our circumstances in the midst of that. So if we have Christ, we are satisfied. I want to just